0: Welcome to the path to CPO, where we peel back the layers of success and delve into the journeys of the most dynamic chief people officers. I'm your host, Nelson Sibalingam, CEO and co-founder of HowNow. Together, we'll explore the trials, the triumphs and insights of these trailblazers across people, culture and HR at some of the fastest growing companies in the world. This is not just their story. It's a roadmap for all aspiring people leaders. Tune in, rise up, and let's embark on this enlightening journey together. Ash, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited um, to to really kind of dive into your story because it's quite an eclectic and colourful one. Starting off with studying sound tech and music, going into sales trainer and now VP of people. Um, And so where do we start? why don't we start with yeah. how did you go from studying sound tech and music to becoming a sales trainer what what happened there
1: well you're really going way back aren't you <laughs> um yeah it's, it's it's eclectic is definitely the word it's a real a real mixed bag for my for my for my past and sort of everything leading up to here and who knows what what's next um but sound engineering was a real, real passion for music in general um just through school days and um you know whether it's primary school secondary school even through a levels um you know music and creativity was really where i lived and that's where that's where the, the grades were at the higher end of the scale as opposed to the other the other subjects um, and you know i enjoyed the sciences and maths and english and that kind of thing too but um but i just didn't uh, necessarily have a passion for it and so music was where where it was at but i also had this love for technology in general and bearing in mind this was some years ago and so recording of music was still sort of big studios and you know you wouldn't necessarily be able to do what you can do now with a laptop and a decent microphone at home. And, you know, technology kind of great, you know, come on leaps and bounds, which is amazing for musicians today. And um, so back then it was, it, you know, it felt quite intricate. There was lots to, there was lots to, you know, a combination of music and technology felt like a bit of an art form in itself. Um, and so I got, I got involved in that um, because I, because I was good at it through school. That was kind of it. And then as university went on and I, you know, I really enjoyed the course and came out of university and um it wasn't i can't say it wasn't necessarily a conscious choice to then move into sales it was a bit of a a, a moment of you know what am i going to do with my career like where's this going to go And so music technology remained there music and technology and sound engineering and stuff that remained there and you know i continued doing a few gigs and you know engineered at a few places and 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 made some money from it and um you know had um had a sort of a, a couple of artists that I work with quite regularly that I really enjoyed and, and, and had some fun with that. And, um, and then, and then I, I, it wasn't, it wasn't going big, let's put it that way. And so it was a case of, well, I've got to find something else to do as well. And uh, let's, let's ensure that I have options for my future. And, um, and so sales came along as kind of this opportunity and in sales, you know, it was sort of property sales to begin with in a state agency, sort of very typical start to that sales career. And then I moved into recruitment because the property crash happened in you know two thousand and eight ish, and 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 so recruitment felt like the next natural step. And um, recruitment was where I got my first taste of management, which I loved. And that was and it was still quite early in my career, and I felt you know this is I really really enjoy this you know uh, sort of working with others, but not just as a peer group but as a team. And I really enjoyed that that sort of experience. Um, and then recruitment kind of led me to understanding what technology sales meant, and that was my move into tech. So I moved, to, you know, I moved to a, a a digital marketing agency as a salesperson. I really really enjoyed that, um, but there was something missing. And when I reflect on it, I kind of realised this. But at the mo- moment, it just felt a bit empty. I think, and it felt like, well, what am I going to do next? There's always that, what am I going to do next feeling. When I reflect on it now, it was kind of this this feeling of there's got to be more to this. And, and they and I didn't seem to be motivated by sales in the same way that my peer group were motivated and whether I hit target or not, I kind of felt the same. Um, and, and while everyone else was ecstatic, if they hit target and I thought, sort of, you know, there's, there's something going on here. Um, couldn't quite put my, put, put my finger on it though. Um, and then it kind of dawned on me that it was, that I was always thinking about, you know, there's something more to, there's something deeper to this on the sales side of things. And I was like, well, there's a psychology to selling. And I started reading books around that. Um, And then I decided, well, actually, let me go and study psychotherapy and psychology, just to understand this a little bit more. And it's a real impulsive, Googled it, found a place. And then, you know, a week later, I'm just just, like studying part time. And I really enjoyed that. And I ended up then specializing in hypnotherapy, very impulsive thing to do, but kind of one thing led to another. And I realized at that point that it was all about how people make decisions, the makeup of personalities and the psychology of decision-making that I loved as opposed to selling. And so when a sales training opportunity came up and I had people around me who supported me, like my manager at the time and some colleagues at the time, um, and they helped me sort of, you know, get this opportunity to do it, um, suddenly else a sales trainer. Um, but I felt it was quite different in that I um, sort of took a psychological approach to it as opposed to just, you know, sales experience. So, so the um, first question, yeah, yeah, I was going to say,
0: Ash, the first question is, do you still make music? Yeah. <laughs> no unfortunately I don't have you got like a pseudo name where you're still performing
1: (laughs) (laughs) I wish that was the case you know and I've sort of this other personality um like a Ron Swanson-esque from um (laughs) from Parks and Rec that'd be great but no I don't um I do still play my instruments very occasionally but um no Unfortunately not, we don't make
0: much music. <laughs> I guess just taking you back to that point before you made that decision to try out sales, right? It's always a hard one to know when to stop, right? Even when you know something's not working, sometimes it we feel like it's easier to just kind of keep going. There's a kind of comfort of sticking with what you're doing and seeing whether it would gradually get better. Um, when you look back, what do you think helped you make the decision to go, actually, no, I, I do need to draw the line and make a decision here to to go try out something else like sales,
1: as in from moving from music into sales. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think it was anything in particular. I've got to say, I don't think there was that there was a moment or a particular instance that said, right, you know, it's time to time to move on or time to look at something different. It was definitely a combination of events. I think I think this happens with a with a, with a lot of. I'm going to go into the psychology of it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think this happens with a lot of us, right? That in the moment, it's sort of a series of small events and micro decisions and conversations with people and maybe even where we happen to be at the time that sort of leads us down in a particular way. And if we're at the fork, if we're at a fork in the road, what's surrounding us at that point in time will encourage us to go one way or another. And if it happened to be a different day, we may have gone the other way. But then when we look back on it, we kind of have a lot of confirmation bias behind us that, oh, is that particular thing or is that particular moment or, you know, I made this conscious decision. When it never really was, and I think I think I firmly fit into that that camp where it was just these series of things that led me towards one day deciding that actually, you know, I'm, let me go and look at a, a career elsewhere and see what also comes of that, because I'm not going to stop my music stuff, um, but I am going to give myself options, and and at the time, you know, um, be, it's being early in my career. And enjoying this idea of selling, of selling and being in there, being a salesperson in, in you know, especially in, in London where there's, you know, lots of positivity around it and, you know, um, it was a career path to to the whole sort of thing. Um, I thought, where do I start? An estate agency was where you started. So um it was, well, let's go and let's go and get myself a, a job at an, at an estate agent and and let's get cracking, you know.
0: Yeah. yeah. How did you find kind of formally studying the psychology of, of things? How did that help you with The kind of being a sales trainer did it help in in any way and if it did how did you think it helped
1: yeah it it helped so much and it it was twofold so one it helped me understand my own psychology so much more than i had appreciated that i didn't understand my own psychology so the level of self-awareness was brilliant just that constantly growing and since then i've always been in this state of the most important thing to learn about is yourself and so constant self-development i think is the is a huge huge part there and then being able to reflect that upon other people and sort of, you know, not just sales trained via, via the process to follow and the script that you need to read and, you know, all those kinds of things. It was more, um, I was able to, to bring more of, a, more of an angle to it around within, from the perspective of the, who you're sat in front of and who you are, are two psychologies meeting. So what is it about these psychologies, these personalities, the environment and the conversation that you're going to have that's going to lead towards an outcome that works for both of you because that's ultimately how a decision is made. It's not necessarily about what's on the contract and what the price is and, you know, which, which company you represent and all the, and all the rest of it. Um, a relationship is at the core of all of that. Um, and that's what became really intriguing for me around, um, psychology being such a big part of sales training, as opposed to it just being sales training, you know, around a script and tactics and, you know, um, tips and tricks.
0: Just really curious around the self-awareness piece. I'm often found talking about the fact that it's probably one of the key traits I respect and admire and appreciate in people. And it's a trait that I, I value when I'm looking for. It. I think self-awareness is probably the beginning of many, many other things. Um, what helped you develop that self-awareness? What in particular about going through that training helped you develop that self-awareness and the appreciation for it?
1: I think it. I think it started with an, an awareness of that my own decisions that I'm making and the things that I decide to do and the way I go about things is not just what I'm consciously thinking about. It's rooted in you know potentially even my DNA and how I've been brought up and the conditions within which and the people I know. And possibly most importantly in recent um sort of in as you as you grow up and sort of get through your career, who you're surrounded by um and what's what's shown to you as normal ends up conditioning you and who you decide to then become as well so all as all of those sort of factors and layers started sort of you know dawning on me as, as reasons why I am who i am that that led me to th- that led me to realize how much how much more there is I don't know about myself, so that real self-analysis started to started to kick in and and then and then and then that realization of well you know imagine how many other people could feel better about not to you know not just feel better about themselves but unlock higher potential in them in themselves by going through some of this awareness as well so the first realization being being very internal and then and then sort of being being of that personality that wanted to help people thinking about how this could also then help others um and that I think was the start without and not wanting to, to sort of jump ahead too much here, but I think that was without me realizing at the beginnings of me sort of entering the people space. Um, because of that point, that that moment in time where I thought, you know, I could help others with this. This matters.
0: Yeah. Which is a good segue for us to move into your kind of next big chapter, as you said, stepping into the people space and obviously the 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 long stint that you did at Trustpilot um, going from strength to strength, starting from L&D to kind of leading that talent function. But the first thing I want to start with is what surprised you about the people space? So going in, you've just come into sales, you became a trainer, and now you're going into the people space. What surprised you?
1: That's a really good question. I think the one of the biggest surprises along the way has been sometimes how easy it is to disconnect from the commercial side of the business. I think there's a lot of historic um yeah or, or maybe 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 not historic but I think there's there's a lot, a lot of tradition in hr um and the people space arguably but hr more so that's almost this separate entity within the business from commercial from the commercial side of the business and it's sort of you know processes and structures as opposed to going out there and winning business and and I think that surprised me. So, with the commercial background I've got, I I always saw the two intertwined. It's like you can't have one without the other. And going from sales training to on the to being involved in L and D more sort of more broadly, and then sort of leadership development and coaching, and then overall overseeing a talent function, I, I could never see the two as disconnected. But I just heard from so many others in 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 I guess the industry in the in sort of the people space that these two things seem to exist very independently of each other. And that that surprised me. And it still surprises me now, actually, when I hear, hear conversations or in conversations that feel those two things are so disconnected.
0: And, and when you started in that L&D role, was it always on your kind of horizon to be the head of that talent function? Was, was that the trajectory you were on?
1: No, not really. I mean, I remember saying out loud um, not that long ago that... I'm in I'm in the talent space now, and you know, have I pigeonholed myself? You know, is this is this it? And it was almost a small fear that I've you're kind of you know pigeonholed myself, and I'm now in a one lane race, and there's nowhere else I can really go. Um, and I didn't really know what else it is I was trying to focus on, but I was concerned that I had I'd cornered myself a little bit. So that I've never really had this sort of vision of. I'm going to be, you know, VP of people at a tech company at some point in the future or chief people officer or head of whatever it might be. It was never, never along those lines. It's it's I think it kind of goes back to what I said a little bit earlier around the series of events, people and experiences that sort of come together over time where you look back and realize that you are where you are, as opposed to trying to get to it. So it's been more of a byproduct of my experiences and relationships and sort of smaller decisions as opposed to something I've, I've sort of, you know, focused on and gone for.
0: And when you look back, has your perspective on L&D changed now that you're a VP of people, as opposed to what it was like when you were in L&D itself, right? Have you, do you, has anything about it changed? Do you think it's more important, less important, or in, in any other way, is your perception of L&D and its role within a company changed?
1: Yeah, it has. It definitely has. I think when I when I was in the thick of it, you know, as a facilitator with a team, you know, out there making making things happen and making the change happen, and really focused on delivery of L and D initiatives, the the importance hasn't changed at all. If anything, you know, I think the importance is increasing. It's definitely not decreasing, but my perspective on it is probably what's different. So you know being being there as the as the leader of an LND team and 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 you know sort of leading leading change hands on as a facilitator you know across multiple workshops and countries and teams etc um you know you're really close to the action you can feel the change happening you can hear the conversations where new language is being new language is being used maybe or a new framework or a new structure and you can sort of see um see the results of your work and even hearing from managers and leaders who come to you and say, you know, I did this and that really worked. Um, or can you help me in this particular situation and you, you know, you're there in the moment. I think as a as a VP people or just as a more senior person who's maybe more on the strategic side, it's it's easy to forget about those experiences. And it's easy to not see the impact of that hard work in facilitation and being there and making the change happen. And looking at numbers instead, and and therefore tr- and therefore sort of draw- drawing conclusions about L and D from numbers and reports, as opposed to hearing it live and in action and understanding L and D from the people. And I think that's that perspective shift is is really good to think strategically, but it can also it can also diminish a bit of value that comes from L&D in the moment. And okay. those people who are impacted by it, they, don't, they won't necessarily talk about the impact of that workshop every single day. Yeah, But the behavior change will be there constantly.
0: Yeah, it's w- one of the age-old challenges of L&D, right? demonstrating impact to, to the rest of the business. But just coming back to, I guess, your trajectory on your way to becoming VP of people, that switch from L and D to leading the talent function—what did you do to build the skills that you needed to, to take on that role? Right? How were you going about building that skill and knowledge that you needed?
1: Yeah, it, it was a bit daunting, I've got to say, um, because it was a, a, a pretty big recruitment function uh, that I was uh, that I was overseeing. Quite quite quickly, I understood it well in that I'd been a trust pilot for a while. And so I knew the people well, um, and I felt I had some good relationships, which all, which obviously all really helped, and a great leader as well, um, who really helped me to see the strategic side of things and helped me to make some very constructive decisions. But the daunting part was not understanding the day jobs of most of my, most of my team, <laughs> you know, not understanding the intricacies of what they were challenged with day to day. What was really good about that, though, is that it forced me to be a coach because I couldn't mentor them. And I think that was a really healthy thing um, for them and for me because it helped me to understand their roles better, but also it helped. I, 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 you know, from looking back now, it really helped me to be be a leader as opposed to a supervisor or a manager of their work and therefore decisions were made by them for them. Um, and I was more so focused on sort of the strategic side of things. So yeah, that it felt like a bit of a leap and there was definitely a gap there. I mean, I had recruited for a few years and managed a recruitment team, so that stuff helped. But that was on the agency side, and it was many years prior, so you know that that was that was helpful, but not necessarily everything I needed to 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 be the right leader. But um, but things snapped into place quite quickly. I feel. I mean, don't get me wrong; there were challenges along the way. Um, but the the most important thing to 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 making that piece work at the time was my leader at the time. And the people that were on my team who were just very good at what they did, and then it was a matter of aligning a strategy with where we needed to go as a business, and ensuring that you know the right things followed from the team.
0: So I, I really love what you said there, Ash. Around you, you didn't think you can mentor them, so you you decided to coach them, right? And and often I find some people use those two words interchangeably, you know, mentoring and coaching, but there is obviously a, a fine difference between them. Okay. Would you share from your perspective what you see the differences in both of those approaches?
1: Yeah, of course. Of course. I think as a I think as a as a manager who who's been there and done done the job of their direct reports, it's very easy to be a mentor because you've been there and done it and you've probably seen the challenges that they're coming up against for the first time. And so it's really easy to, and I almost think of it as a bit of a mentor trap sometimes. Because it's easy to, to to swoop in and say, "Here's how I, I handled it. Here's how to overcome this challenge." You know, I've done it three times, and it can really help that person overcome that challenge at the time. But what they won't necessarily get from that is the experience you had of having to overcome that challenge on your own, maybe, and uh-huh. come to your own conclusions and make your own recommendations and take your own risks. And you know, a lot of the time, many businesses at the moment they don't have the time for risks, um, and especially in this sort of era of efficiency as well, you know, risk is not a not a word that's flying around much. But I think being a being a coach when you're forced to be a coach, like I was because I couldn't be a mentor to to these people, um, it forced me to really exercise that coaching muscle and ask the right questions to help them to come to conclusions that were going to help us really get to the strategy. Um, by pulling on their specialism, by you know asking them to think about you know breaking breaking a challenge down into specific outcomes, and asking how they would you know overcome this particular this particular very small particular challenge and then you know throw it to the team and workshop it and facilitate it um and then the the outcome that or that the way to get to the outcome that felt the most productive for where we are as a business and where we needed to go was the one we went with and we'd give it again right. but um but everyone had their everyone had their say everyone had their input and i always saw it as, as i'm facilitating the specialists you know i don't have the answers but i can ask the right questions so um it's important to be both to, to if you can be both, both it's important to be both but if you had to be one I would say be a coach
0: <laughs> was there ever a moment there when you don't recognize yourself as an expert in that area it's it's easy for kind of I guess imposter syndrome or, or doubt and whether you know am I the right person to lead and manage these people when I'm not the expert in this topic did you ever have those moments and, and how do you deal with that
1: the time (laughs) all the time and definitely in that in that phase where i um oversaw the talent team it was like i said it's a big team it was multinational there's a lot of responsibility on the team as well and i i felt bit, i fell out of my depth um and similarly when i joined mentioned me in my most recent role um in my current role it was my first um, my first executive level role and you know being responsible to the CEO and to a board, et cetera. It's the first time having that experience. And the the imposter syndrome was was real. You know, I really, really felt it there. And it was almost not knowing I, I felt I felt very uncomfortable not knowing the answers. And this is something that my previous managers, you know, spent a lot of my, a lot of time working with me on when she coached me, was, you know, not n- not having the answer all the time is a good thing. Um, and that's actually one of right. my one of my one of my big lessons from um, but that. I that I sort of that I sort of take from those experiences. But yeah, the imposter syndrome has definitely been real in a few of these instances. But getting comfortable with not having the answer is is definitely what what helps me through that.
0: And so, like you said, you you've been about a year and a half in in the role of VP at People, that's right? right? Yeah, right. What do you, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you started that role?
1: What do I wish on you then? It's gonna sound a bit like a bit of a cop out. But I I think it'd be cheating if I took something back in time.
0: Because right, I, no, I think those
1: yeah. ex- you know, because yeah. I think those experiences and the imposter syndromes is necessary to grow. So if I knew what I if I knew some of the stuff I knew, I know now, if I knew some of that then, it wouldn't have been as much of a challenge for me. I wouldn't have had to push myself as much, it, I wouldn't have had to overcome as, as much, I wouldn't have had to go. Um asking you know people in my peer peer group and network um particular questions to help me along the way. um, I wouldn't have had to you know call on my manager to help me overcome a challenge or to coach me through something or to be a mentor for me. And none of that would have happened, and all of that led to relationships being built and me building my profile and my credibility. So I think it's all necessary
0: so one last bit of advice from you, Ash, for someone who's on their own journey. Or path to becoming a VP of people um what's that one bit yeah. of wisdom that you would you'd like to share with them
1: I think the the most important thing I feel just from my experience so far is not having is not having all the answers and getting comfortable with that and almost welcoming welcoming it So I think having the ability to facilitate the answer through having engaging conversations with others across a challenge or a task or whatever it might be is going to be where relationships are built, trust is built, the right answer is found, um, people coming together to find a solution and your your profile as someone that gets to the answer gets built. And it's also where creativity forms because you've got people around you with diverse thinking, etc. and all, all sorts of solutions being thrown at you and and new ideas are formed as well so i would say you know where there's imposter syndrome for example or where there's uncertainty or where there's that feeling of you know is this too big for me or i haven't done this yet use that as your way to bring others in to facilitate your way through it and the outcome of that is going to be way bigger than you know the answer to any question or you know any 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 kind of outcome you could look for you're going to get so many fringe benefits from it so I'd say that's the big takeaway
0: actually I lied I've got one more question for you I have to ask you this yeah, because <laughs> in preparation um for this chat I was going through your uh LinkedIn testimonials, reviews whatever you call them and I'm just going to read a little a little bit out which was quote best L&D pro I've ever worked with was what was written in one of your testimonials. And and I'm always amazed. I love, I get a real joy seeing people who are really good at what they do. I I often describe it as people having their Federer moment, right? And and anyone having their Federer moment is a real joy to watch. And so I wanted to understand, what did you do to make someone feel you were the best L&D pro they've ever worked with?
1: Uh, I mean, I I can't remember who that was, and I'm sure it was from many years ago. Um, I still really appreciate it, obviously. I I mean, in that instance, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think my approach to L and D hasn't changed too much over the over the years. Um, but yeah, so I think I think what I so I'm just thinking about this one. Yeah. Okay. So I think on the L and D facilitation side, especially, I think what's re- what's really important, and I think why why maybe you know people might have thought along those lines, and uh, when when I've facilitated sessions is is giving people the ability to not just practice something, but to have accomplished something in every workshop or session that they attend. So they walk away feeling as though they've done something new. And right. it's not necessarily just through a practice or a role play or a scenario. It's they've done it for real. So if you've done it for real once, you're going to do it for real again. And if you've seen value from it. Um, and I try to stick to that with every every facilitation I do. It's not always possible, but when, when it does work, I, I feel the impact's huge.
0: Ash, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on the show.
1: No worries. Thank you, Nelson. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to another brilliant episode of L&D Disrupt, the podcast that's powered by HowNow. Our learning experience platform helps companies bring relevant learning and skills into the flow of work to make meaningful learning a part of everyday work. But don't just take our word for it. Here's what some of our customers have to say. And if you like what you hear and want to learn more about HowNow, just use the link in the description to book a demo. As a loyal L&D Disrupt listener, We'll send you a swag pack containing a copy of the book Learning at Speed and some HowNow merch once we've shown you around.
1: And we needed somewhere to have a central home for all of the learning content that was being created at Pace. And we also really wanted to to, to support a modernised learning. So moving to that 70-20-10 model where learning is really integrated into the flow of work at the point of need. And we knew that HowNow would be the perfect platform to support with that modernised approach. And I was confident that HowNow was right for FitFlop because it passed the eyeball test at the Learning Technologies Conference, number one. Does it look like
0: it's going to be user-friendly and people might actually want to use it? For my previous companies, I'm used to using very clunky LMSs that don't do much to help with engagement.
1: We've just launched how now actually, um, where I am at the moment with Lucid Group, and um, what we've focused on is the building of habits around learning. So trying to get people into healthy and regular habit of learning so that it becomes an everyday activity as opposed to something they have to take lots of time out. We're very time poor. The tools they've got, the information they need is where they need it at the point, so integrating into Microsoft Teams as we use it or any other collaboration tool, making sure that any learning is accessible at their point of need, so
0: um, where they can ask a search first question and then um, we can provide them the information they need straight away.